We spent the, some time last week considering the implications of the cross of Christ because in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have arrived at that momentous event. It is the central event of all creation. The whole foundation of the world was founded for the cross of Christ and the crucifixion. It is, it is central to all creation and, of course, all Christianity as well. And as we've come to that, we thought it would be some time. Take, we thought it would be profitable to take some time to step back out of the Gospel of Luke and maybe gather our thoughts a little bit about the cross by just examining the doctrine of the cross, examining the implications of the cross from some other New Testament writers, looking and considering some of the key terms and key doctrines that are founded on that. I know for some of us who've known the Lord for many years and listened to hundreds of sermons, the doctrines and the terms associated with the cross are maybe somewhat basic to us. The temptation then is to listen to a sermon about these things with maybe a little less enthusiastic attentiveness than you might normally. These things become so familiar and somehow they just become words to us anymore. And you're really, that is a sad commentary on how easy it is for us to drift away from the initial joy that we all knew in the discovery of these things. Now for some of us, these were the end of a lifelong pursuit to understand Christ, to understand God, to understand the way of salvation, to understand the things that we read in Scripture. And as we came across them, we found treasures that we felt like would never, ever be fully realized in our own mind. These are the most marvelous, incomprehensible, fantastic, and thrilling truths ever uttered by the human tongue, really. There are others of us for which these terms and these doctrines are still very new. They're very new ideas. And you are only now in your... Uh, budding knowledge of Christianity, coming to an understanding of what the cross is really all about, you're really realizing for the first time the glory of how forgiveness was provided for through the cross of Christ. No matter where you are on that spectrum today, my encouragement to you this morning is to focus on one of the truths that is at the core, not only of the Christian faith and not only at the core of the doctrine of salvation, but really of every New Testament doctrine that there is. And that truth could be summarized really with a simple question. It's, it's a question that has plagued men for all time. As a matter of fact, it's a question that's first asked in the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, which although it doesn't appear until the 18th uh, book in the order of the Old Testament books, it is the story of the oldest uh, known patriarch, if you will, uh, a man who preceded not only Moses, but preceded the time of Abraham. The first book written, if you will, uh, out of the Old Testament narrative is the book about Job wrestling with man's standing before God. And one of the most glorious chapters in that entire book, indeed, and really in the entire scripture, Job asks the most important question any person could ever ask. In Job chapter 9, he asks this question, how can a man 
be right with God. How can a man be right before God? People still ask that question today. Thousands of years later. In some cases, people assume that everyone is right with God. They assume that God just equally loves every person. That God could never really be angry with anyone or maybe with the very, very most evil person, most vile person. But for the most part, they just assume that God uh, accepts and loves everyone on the same, in the same standing. And they have, at that point, cultivated a very different view of God than that which Job had. But still, men and women ask themselves the same fundamental question, and it arises from the same place that it arose for Job. They ask the question, maybe, how can a man escape his sense of guilt? Or, how can a person find a way out of this sense of lostness that they have with life? How can we escape the cosmic sense of loneliness with which we walk through our existence? The sense of emptiness or meaninglessness in life? How can we get away from those things? Where's the answer for those things? The world may redefine God as some sort of divine grandfather figure, but at the end of the day, there is still a guilt and an emptiness that nags every heart. Well, Job rightly recognized that that sense came from a broken relationship with God. And so he asked the question that afflicts every heart. How can a man or woman be right with God? And having asked the question, he then pins these words in Job chapter 9. Listen carefully. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains and they know not how, when he overturns them in anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Who makes the bear, Orion, and Pleiades in the chambers of the south. Who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? And then Job explains that although he may seem innocent in his own eyes or even in the eyes of other men, God would still find him guilty. He says in the next verse, For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy 
of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it's a matter of power, behold, he's the strong one. And if it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. And though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. This is really a profound reflection. What Job is saying is that because God is the kind of God that he is, who can ever approach him? Who could ever hope to stand before such a mighty God and yet such a holy God? One who sees and knows us even better than we know ourselves. And even if we were innocent in our own eyes, even if we were innocent before other men, God would still see guilt in areas that we don't even perceive. How can I ever have a relationship with such a mighty, holy and powerful God. How can I have a relationship with a God like that when I'm nothing like Him? My hidden guilt, He will find out. That's the question then. How can a man be right with God? And really the only answers that men have ever been able to come up with is first of all, try to redefine God so that He's not like that anymore. Uh, deny the God of the Bible and recreate one in your own image so that you could have some hope of standing before Him. Redefine Him. Secondly, deny that He exists at all so that you don't have to deal with the question and yet people do that and still have no answer for their soul. And then thirdly, simply despair. Despair that He is so infinitely distinct and separated from man that we have no basis and no hope by which to ever approach Him. Despair and cast yourself into sin. Soothe your conscience or dull and numb it with the allurements of this, of this life. Another place in the Old Testament, the book of Micah, the prophet Micah says this. In chapter 6, he writes, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my religious act, uh, for, excuse me, for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's struggling with the same thing. What am I going to do in order to be able to approach God? What can I do that would somehow appease his Wrath and anger against my sin and my rebellious acts. What would I be able to offer? Even all the prescribed sacrifices of the Old Testament, even if I offered up my firstborn son, would he see it as something that would give me access to stand before him? What am I going to be able to do to be right with God? You know the answer is? You want to know what the answer is? From the Bible? What can man do to be right with God? Here it is. Nothing. Nothing. You 
can't do anything. All sinners are condemned and confined under the judgment of God. All sinners are equally unable and incapable of making themselves right with God. All sinners are completely without hope of escaping His judgment on their own. And if you doubt that, all you need to do is read the first three chapters of Romans. When Paul lays out in very clear, undeniable detail, both from the law of God and from the experience of humanity, that no one can ever approach God on his own. In fact, turn with me there to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. When you come to Romans 3.10 and you read Paul's conclusion after those three chapters and he arrives at this statement in Romans 3 verse 10. There is none righteous. Not even one. There's none righteous. There are none who are right, if you want to say it that way. There are none who are right before God. That's what the word righteous means. And he goes on. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Or a better translation there of that word would be sour. They all have soured themselves. There's none who does good. There's not even one, he says. And then he describes them. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues keep on deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. You know what all that is? That's all quotation from God's Word. This isn't Paul's words at all. He's just stringing together a a litany of statements out of the Old Testament that give God's perspective on humanity. And the bottom line in verse 18 is this judgment. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's God's assessment of man. That's the way that God sees you, no matter how you see yourself. And it comes to a climax in verse 19. When at the end of that verse, Paul says, whatever the law says, it speaks. He says, so that every mouth may be shut, and all the world may become accountable to God. He's saying, look, you're going to stand before God one day and all the excuses will be gone. All the explanations of your actions, all the blame shifting and explaining away, all the friends and environment and all that stuff that you like to use to explain your actions, it'll all be gone. Every mouth will be shut. And the conclusion that Paul comes to, how can a man be right before God? The conclusion he comes to, what can you do to be right before God? Nothing. Nothing. But let me be clear. Let me be clear. The Bible says there's nothing you can do to be right before God. But there is something God can do. Right? There's something God can do. 
The Bible clearly demonstrates that a man can be right with God, not on the basis of anything that he or she does. And Christianity stands distinct from every other religion in the world in that sense. Every other religion on the planet offers you a way to be right with God in your own efforts, by your own deeds. Every religion of the world tells you you can be right with God by doing certain things based on your own effort. It's always the religion, if you want to say it this way, it's always the religion of of human achievement. But Christianity is a religion of divine accomplishment. Paul says every other way to God, no matter what it promises, no matter what uh, sacred books it's written on, no matter what it says, if it is offering you a a way to God based on your own efforts, it is bogus. Now this is particularly devastating truth to religious people. This is devastating truth to the religious who, th- who like to think that somehow they can get to God on their own terms, that somehow they own some sort of righteousness that because other men may recognize, that God will therefore recognize, the way to get to God is by their own effort. Well, the Old Testament saints, the saints of old, Job, Micah, all the Old Testament saints recognize that that's not the case. And so you come to Romans 3 and everything we've read through verse 19 And even into verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But as you do that, as you come through verse 20 and you come to verse 21, you're really buried at this point in your sin. That's what the scripture does. It absolutely buries you. You've been buried under your sin, but you come in verse 21 of chapter 3 and you read these beautiful words. But now, but now, very, very important words because they are a marvelous transition in the message of the Apostle Paul. Up till now, everything in this whole book has been sin and ugliness and hopelessness and blackness and darkness and despair and hell and damnation and judgment and condemnation. Everything up to this point has been man standing at the bar of God's judgment and having absolutely no defense, having his mouth completely shut up and his own works unable to do anything to commend him in any way. And then with those words, but now, but now you meet a transition. Now, he says in verse 21, apart From the law, or you might say apart from anything that you could do in keeping religious laws. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Notice this isn't the righteousness of man. It's the righteousness of God. Righteousness was manifested. Righteousness that man had to have if he was going to find a way of approaching God. That now has been revealed. That's what manifested means. How did God make His righteous manifest? He goes on that this righteousness being manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God has made now 
His righteousness manifests. You see, when Christ came, God's full righteousness was finally on visible display in a way that never had been before on this earth. In fact, this sounds very familiar to what Titus says. Titus 3, 4 says, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. The kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared. It was manifest. Righteousness that was so unreachable, righteousness that was so elusive, was now visible and within reach. It's not a righteousness we achieve, but it is a righteousness, a righteousness we receive from Him. Now when Paul says this, and when he says the righteousness of God was manifest, he, he is saying that the deepest, most profound question in the human heart has an answer. The question that Job asked, the question that Micah asked, the question that men ask, how can I escape this lostness? How can I escape this emptiness? How can I escape this despair? How can a man, how can a woman be right with God? It has an answer. And the answer is God's righteousness. God then answers this dilemma in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. You couldn't do it by keeping laws. You couldn't do it by your own rules. Jesus Christ, though, satisfied God's demand for righteousness. He satisfied it by, first of all, obeying every law that God had mandated, every law that God had revealed. He kept every one of them, lived a perfectly righteous life. And then secondly, he satisfied God's demand for righteousness in the sense that he offered a sacrifice that his righteous standard demanded for all sinners. I don't know if you've ever read the uh, Greek play, the Iliad. There's a point in there where the great warrior of Troy is getting ready to go out and battle against Achilles in really his final battle. He doesn't know it yet. But he knows he's going up against a skilled warrior. And so before he goes out, he wants to say one last goodbye to his wife and his only son. And he comes to them before he steps out on the battlefield and he's in full array of his armor and he goes to kiss his wife and he reaches out for his son and his son turns around and buries his crying eyes into his mother's leg. Hector at that point begins to take off every piece of his armor, his helmet, his shield, sets them aside, takes every piece of armor off and then reaches out for his son. And of course, his son runs straight into his arms. That's what happens here in Romans 3. God, the warrior, takes off all the armor and he's standing there now without all the fearful trappings anymore, opening up his arms so that we can run to him. No longer in fear. Jesus Christ has offered that. He's been the judge. He's been the executioner. His fury has been poured out in the, in the statements throughout the first three chapters. But now behind all the armor, we find a Savior, not a judge. A righteousness that has been given for the righteousness that men couldn't have on their own. 
Now, Paul says several things about this righteousness. I want to take you through them very quickly this morning. We obviously could take weeks to look at this. But I want to take, take you very quickly through this passage as we try to wrap our minds around again what the cross was really all about and why Jesus had to die. Why it was so much more than what some people say, just a, a, a noble martyr who died for a cause he really believed in. Why it was so much more than just a revolutionary who got caught up in the political maneuvering of the world and his, his uh, message was somehow thwarted. All of this... Christ accomplished to demonstrate and to provide for God's righteousness. First of all, Paul tells us this is a righteousness that is apart from the law. We've already said a little bit about this, but he notes that there in verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It is apart from man's efforts to keep a system of rules. Righteousness doesn't happen that way. We don't gain access to God that way. We don't claim a standing because we've been raised in the right home and brought up with the right rules and kept all the right laws. We don't gain a standing before God because we've learned the Ten Commandments and lived by them perfectly our whole life. There are a lot of people who don't understand that. There are people who are out there still today trying to live by all these rules and all these standards. People who, in some cases, they're lighting their candles and crawling on their knees and saying their recited prayers over and over again. In other cases, there are people who want to make sure that their hair is cut the right way or that they're wearing the right thing with a certain length or whatever it might be. And they're doing all of these things because they believe that if they don't do them, that they won't be right before God, but if they do do them, somehow God will be more apt to accept them. But the message of Romans is this, that the law of God works only to bring God's wrath. That's what he says at the end of verse 20, see? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge. That's all God's law does. That's all it can do for you. All it can do for you is show you sin. It has no power to give you righteousness. It has no power to change you. All it does is condemn. Because nobody can keep it. If you want to say it another way, the law serves basically to justify God's wrath. It validates before the eyes of all, that the wrath that God pours out against sinners is not unjust. It isn't unjust of God to condemn anyone to hell. It's basically, by the way, if you look over in Romans 4, in verse 15, it says basically the same thing. The law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there's no violation. Law defines sin. Law defines God's right to condemn us. Law defines God's wrath as being just. Back over in chapter 3, secondly, not only is righteousness apart from the law, it's consistent with Scripture. It's consistent with Scripture. He says there in verse 21, it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul's saying, look, this righteousness that was manifest through Jesus Christ is exactly what the Old Testament consistently pointed to. It isn't anything revolutionary. It isn't anything that Paul invented. 
Paul is saying that this righteousness that was manifested doesn't violate, doesn't cancel out, doesn't set aside anything that was written in the law and the prophets. In fact, it validates everything that's written there. Even in the Old Testament, the law didn't make people righteous and the Old Testament saints realized that. It only showed how sinful they were. It only threw them on the mercy of God. And the whole point was, in giving the law, the whole point was so that the Jew could look at the law of God, could realize that he couldn't keep the law of God, and then would hopefully realize that his only escape was to cry out for the mercy of God and believe that somehow God would provide for that mercy. This righteousness, Paul says, this is the righteousness that's been revealed in Jesus Christ, a message that was clearly revealed in the Old Testament and Christ's life and his message confirms that, it fulfills that. The Old Testament was all about pointing people to the need for a sacrifice for sins. That's why you had a temple. That's why you had all these lambs and all these bulls and all these pigeons or whatever it was constantly being poured out. It demanded all that, and then at the end of the day, it said, after all of that, it said it wasn't enough. That you could offer every one of those sacrifices and it wasn't enough. In fact, over in chapter 4, again, verse 2, Paul uses Abraham as an illustration And he says this, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast, but not before God. His works haven't justified him. But what does the Old Testament say? Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. It's credited to him as righteous. All the ceremonies of the Old Testament, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they couldn't give life. Same way that all your Rules and all your religious duties today, they can't give life. They can't change you. They can't solve your emptiness. They can't make you right before God. Well, there's a third element here. Righteousness here. Not only is it apart from the law, not only is it consistent with Scripture, but thirdly, verse 22, it is received by faith. It's received by faith. Paul says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. It comes by faith, just like with Abraham. And through that faith, God credits you with a righteousness that you could never achieve on your own. It's not the righteousness of man. It doesn't come by works. It doesn't come through anything that you do. It's a righteousness of God. And it comes to you through faith. How did Abraham get right with God? He believed. He believed that God would do the things that he said. That's the gist of Romans 4.20. If you look down there, he says, In respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. That's the whole thing, faith. Abraham believed God. Now you need to say along this way that there is such a thing as false faith. Scripture is replete with warnings against that kind of thing. People who have a knowledge about the facts of Jesus Christ, but they have no obedience to Him. Scripture calls that false faith. In fact, Jesus says in John 8.31, He said to some who, it says in John 8.30, believed in Him, and yet He warns them. He says, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly My disciples. That's, That's a false faith when you don't do that. 
That kind of faith, although may show an initial joy. Matthew 13 talks about a, a sower th- sowing these seeds, throwing these seeds on the ground, and they kind of sprout up suddenly, and then many of them wither and die. And Matthew, 18, uh, Matthew 13 talks about how people respond to the gospel sometimes with an initial joy, and we've all seen it. People go through their life, they have some sort of brief religious experience. There's some sort of brief and temporary joy over the things of God, and then they fall away. That's not true faith. That's false faith. But true faith, genuine faith, is the means by which you receive this righteousness. Just like Abraham. What did Abraham believe, by the way? What did Abraham believe that caused God to credit him with righteousness? Did he believe the facts about the cross? He didn't even know about the cross. He'd never heard of the cross. He'd never heard of Jesus Christ. You know what he believed, though? He believed everything God said. He believed everything that God said. Apart from the details of the cross, apart from the details of who Jesus was, he believed. And that belief was in everything that God was and what he said. Frankly, faith has, for many people, been redefined these days as simply some sort of passive agreement with the facts about Jesus. You kind of go through a little story or a little booklet and you give them five or six statements and you say, well, do you agree with all those things? Yes. And that is their definition of faith. But saving faith isn't the passive agreement with the facts about Jesus. It is the placing of yourself in total submission to His Lordship. The building of your life on everything that He said Not so that you can gain a righteousness before God, but because you believe and you've received everything from Him. So righteousness of God is made available by true faith. It's apart from the law. It's according to Scripture. It's through faith. And then fourthly, we need to say it's without distinction. It's without distinction. He says that at the end of verse 22. That this righteousness is for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. Anybody who believes can be saved. You say, well, you mean it doesn't matter if they're horrible people? It doesn't matter how bad they are? What if they've done some awful things? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how irreligious they are. It doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter if they're God-haters, if they're criminals, if they're murderers. It doesn't matter if they're child molesters, immoral. It doesn't matter if they're brutal. It doesn't matter if they're bitter. It doesn't matter, matter if they've been religious hypocrites. It doesn't matter any of it. Because nothing that they have done matters before God when they receive this righteousness. Nothing that they have done commends them to God. It isn't relative people have a hard time getting their minds around that. They have a hard time understanding that good isn't relative. Good isn't relative. It's absolute. That the Bible says what it says when it says there are none who are good, that is an absolute statement. It doesn't measure you according to other people and say, well, you are more good and you're less good. It says there are none who are good. Evil may be relative. Some of us may be more evil than others, but the, the 
the statement or the uh, judgment of Scripture is that we all are evil. We all are sinners. On the surface, there may appear to be relative differences in us. The same sort of category as my former pastor said, you know, we could all line up on the coast and try to jump to, uh, he talked about Catalina Island out there. We could all line up there on the beach and, and take our biggest run and biggest jump and some of us would get two feet. Some of us who are trained athletes might get 20 feet. But all of us would fall very, very far short, right? There is no relative goodness. There's only relative evil. Some of us maybe because of grace in our life, because of provision of maybe better homes, better parenting or something, we may be less evil than others. But none of it commends us to God. No one can present themselves to God and so there's no difference. There's no distinction. God receives everyone. God receives all. Paul sort of qualifies that in verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being on the face of the earth stands in the same position, the same boat. And so there's no distinction when God dispenses this righteousness. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've come from. Well, that all leads us to the final glorious truth about this righteousness. It's revealed through Jesus, he says, this, this righteousness. I'm sorry, our first point. It's apart from the law. It's consistent with Scripture. It's received by faith. It's without distinction. And then verse 5, it's given freely through grace. It's given freely through grace. He says this in verse 24, being justified. That's a big word for a lot of people. Just, justified or justification. Just like righteousness being, it means being right before God, justified means being just before God. I don't know if you've ever tried to justify your actions to anyone, but that's basically what this is talking about. This is referring to the justification of our life before God. And Paul says here, we are justified as a gift by His grace. Now this is all just a continuation of everything he's been saying back in verse 22, that the righteousness of God is by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And verse 23 sort of comes in there as a parenthesis to explain how there's no distinction and why there's no distinction. And then verse 24, back to the main point that those who believe are made right with God freely by His grace. And we are justified, he says. Now I don't know. We, we, I don't know what goes through your mind when you talk about justifying yourself. I think for many people, say that our lives are justified before God isn't like your kid coming to you and trying to justify his actions. That's usually really just nothing more than a bunch of excuses and blame shifting, right? That's really all it is rather than taking ownership of that. This isn't that. This isn't God pretending that we're righteous when we're really not. That's not what Paul's talking about here. This is an actual transfer of righteousness. This is a crediting of righteousness so that you are actually the owner of that righteousness. Just like when your boss direct deposits your check into the your checking account at the end of the day, 
excuse me, the end of the week, and you go out and have your shopping list for the weekend, you're not acting as though, you're not pretending that money's in the bank. You're the actual owner of it. It's been transferred and credited to your account. And that's what the scripture says about this righteousness. Abraham believed God and it is credited to him as righteousness. This is an actual transfer of God's righteousness to you. This is not some sort of pretended righteousness. This whole transaction, your sins are wiped away. Righteousness is credited to your account. And then you are transformed. And God grants you a new nature. A nature of righteousness. And all of this happens, the scripture says, freely. It happens freely. What does that mean, obviously? What does free mean? It's a gift. It's without payment. It's without anything that you do or anything that you offer or anything that you earn. We're justified without any price to pay on our part. All we do is believe. Believe God. And God graciously gives us His righteousness so that He can give us salvation. Now notice I say, I didn't say that it is free. I said it's freely given, but it's not free. It may cost you nothing, but it costs God a great deal. It costs God a great deal. God's loving and gracious act to freely give us these things was extremely costly. The only way that it could be given to us in verse 24 is through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We talked about it last week extensively. Redemption is what? It's a price paid. It's a ransom. It's a price paid for the release of somebody. It was often used in the Roman world to speak of the slave trade. How, price, how you pay the price to give a slave his freedom. It's also used in the sense of prisoners. And the Bible pictures us as both. Both slaves in our sin and prisoners under our condemnation because of our sin. And Jesus Christ came and paid the price to grant us freedom. In fact, you could say that maybe this is a sixth point you could add is that this righteousness is paid for with blood. It's paid for with blood. Because look what he says in verse 25. This whom God displayed, the whom that he's talking about, the antecedent for that is back in verse 24. Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, the one who saves, he's the agent. God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation In his blood through faith. Now propitiation, that's another big word, isn't it? We don't use that every day. Let me explain propitiation to you. You see, God couldn't just forgive you and I and just wipe away our sins and then not deal with the injustice of that. And we understand that a guilty person who goes free without any kind of penalty is unjust. We all understand that. God couldn't just set us free without dealing with our sin without dealing with our violation 
Love could forgive, but justice has to be met. And so justice requires a penalty. The penalty has to be paid. God required death. God required a sacrifice. Jesus became the sacrifice. He becomes the satisfaction in God's demand for justice. And the word propitiation, that's what it means. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. So Jesus becomes the satisfaction of all God's demands for justice. How did he satisfy? He satisfied by offering the death that God's law demands in sin. Let me ask you this. Who did he satisfy? He satisfied God. You know, we get all this Christian literature today, all the focus in our Christian music on the fact that Jesus satisfies us. But you know where all the emphasis is in Scripture? You know where the emphasis is here in Romans 3? That He satisfied God on your behalf. God had to be satisfied. And when Jesus died, He met God's requirement that you and I couldn't meet. And God was satisfied with that. There was a propitiation that came through it. And that satisfaction came through His blood. It says, and He became a sacrifice. He became a substitute so that the benefits of His death could be appropriated. The benefits of His death could be credited to us as righteous. Now this whole exchange, everything we've said this morning, is summarized in one verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says, God made Him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the substitution. So that God credits Jesus with your sin. Every sinful deed that you engaged in, every sinful act, every sinful thought, every violation of God's law, God credited that towards Jesus when you place your faith in Him. It's really really a glorious truth. It's not anything that I naively think that we could capture in 45 minutes this morning we can reacquaint ourselves with this maybe in some cases introduce you to this but it's a doctrine that all the new testament explores and plumbs the depth of it's a doctrine that all the saints from the old testament look forward to it's a doctrine of the gloriously free gift of salvation to all men purchased on the cross of christ when he spilled his blood It's a glorious truth that you and I, many of us have experienced. Perhaps some of you haven't. And the challenge this morning is for you who've sat and listened and heard everything God's Word has to say about the cross of Christ. The challenge is, will you receive what Christ has offered? I'm not talking about accept some facts, believe a story, I'm talking about believing 
in the way that Abraham believed. Believing everything God has to say. Which begins with accepting the condemnation of His law. Recognizing that you stand condemned before God and worthy of eternal punishment in hell. Believing that, but then also believing that He has provided for mercy if you'll cry out to Him. This morning, I want to challenge you. If this is your life, if you are the one who's crying out, how can I be right with God? How can I lose this sense of emptiness and this lostness? How can my life be filled when it's been empty? God has brought you here in His providence so that you can hear His Word. Perhaps He's chosen you. Perhaps He's chosen you so that you can believe. My challenge to you this morning, turn away from your sin, repent, and trust Christ for your salvation. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Lord, you know we could never, ever say too much. We could never look too often, linger too long over the glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that these words and these truths become for us sometimes only routine that for some of us who came through your grace to the saving knowledge of Christ maybe many years ago these truths no longer stir us as they ought and I pray Lord that that wouldn't be that we would be just as stirred and just as warmed in our hearts today as we ever were for these unspeakable truths Beyond words. And Lord, in your mighty power, it's my prayer today that any who haven't come to that saving knowledge, who know only the facts of Christ, but haven't built their life on it, who continue to go through life with that nagging emptiness and despair and guilt in their heart, that they would understand, as they've never understood before, how freely you have offered salvation today. And I pray in your mighty power, Lord, that you would flood their hearts with faith. May they cry out to you and find no longer a judge, but find a Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.